baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to Sunday Take for January 7th, 2024. I'm your host, Blaise Olson. This week, we are going to check in on Anoka County, and we're going to talk about the issues there. Uh, and they've had a new change in leadership. And Anoka County is a county of 370,000 plus people. It's got a budget of $300 million. And frankly, you know, the question is, it's growing. and the politics of it are changing. So Chairman Mike Gamash is going to join us. He's going to talk about the issues in the county, as well as the politics of that county board, which have been a little colorful for the last year or so. In addition, the take. But the thing to start thinking about now that we're in the new year is, as I've outlined before, the power balance in the Minnesota House. Well, this week we had two veteran lawmakers announced they're not running again. And last week on the show, we heard uh, Paul Cassidy talk about term limits aren't really needed because the churn in the legislature is high enough that you have enough turnover. Mike Nelson and Liz Olson, both DFLers, Mike from uh, the Metro and Liz from Duluth, both said they won't run again. That's institutional knowledge that's leaving the legislature. And I haven't done the math, but I would say that two-thirds or more of the legislature has turned over in the last six years. We've followed the politics of that, and we continue to look at the politics of that. But the real question is, what does it mean for the institutional knowledge? If you have everybody new, does that mean that traditions or legacy projects, legacy projects, ways in which things got done don't happen. I'll examine that in the take. When we come back, Commissioner Mike Gamash. I'm Blaise Olson. You're listening to Sunday Take. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. My first guest this week on Sunday Take is uh, Chairman Mike Gamash. He's the chairman of the Anoka County Board. And news this week that he uh, assumed that role as chair uh, sparked some conversation. And Anoka County is a significant county in our state with nearly 370,000 people and a $374 million budget. And so we don't often talk about local areas like this, but Anoka County is something that people um, are curious about. It's a growing county, and and I thought it'd be good to have the chairman on. So, uh, Chairman Gamash, thanks for joining me. Thank you. I appreciate uh, the time. So, um, you were elected chair this this week. Um, talk about a how long you've been on the board, and and b kind of why it's a little bit of a change of 
um, leadership for you to be the chair versus, you know, people who have been the chair previously? Sure. Uh, yeah, I was first elected uh, to the county board in 2014. Um, so took office in 2015. That was after serving uh, for 14 years as the mayor of the city of Andover. And uh, the difference, uh, what's happened uh, for this election period for the chairmanship was that we really begun to have some conversation over the last few years after um, some changes from when Rhonda Sivaraja was our chair, and then she moved into the role of our administrator. Um, I had brought up uh, earlier, and it didn't get much reaction, but uh, many of the counties uh, in the metro area will do rotating chairmanships to get everybody involved in in, in leading the meetings and, and handling that position. So I had brought that up to um, a number of, of my fellow commissioners, and it didn't really go anywhere. But it started going in, uh, someplace after 2022. Uh, so that's when we started to have a few discussions about it. Um, and then we get to the end of the year when we were discussing whether or not we're going to go with rotating necessarily or just vote like we have always done. And we couldn't really come to a decision. So the decision was we'll stick with the normal pattern. Uh, people that want to serve will reach out to their fellow commissioners to see if they can get their support. And we got to a vote on um, January 2nd. And um, I was fortunate enough to have uh, four people that were supporting me. And then Commissioner Schulte, who also had put his name in, um, ended up voting for me at the end. So it was a five to one vote. And you, and you, um, as you take this role, there's some big issues that Anoka County has, um, you know, been dealing with. I think the one that is front and center is a public safety center or a jail that needs to be modernized. Help listeners understand kind of what the what the issues there are, the cost. What are what are the challenges to trying to get that uh, through the county board? Sure. The uh, the jail was built in 1983, and uh, unfortunately, at that point in time, uh, about eight years into the having a new jail, they realized it was already too small uh, and they had to uh, go to the DOC and request that we dump a bunk and do a number of things. So for the longest time, we've been dealing with a jail that was already too small when it was built. And um, now it's been 30 some years and uh, well, coming on 40. Um, and we need a new jail. There's uh, issues with the roof. There's issues with uh, um, just, well, first of all, the whole layout. If you ever saw our jail, one of the things that you should have, a, especially in a county of the size of Minoka County, you should have an area where uh, they pull people in uh, to um, put them into, put them into the jail and get, get them started on the process. That should be bigger than a maybe oversized home garage. And that's basically okay. what we have. You can maybe fit four cars into there and then they all have to yes. back out after they pulled in. So you can imagine on a, maybe a Friday, busy Friday, Saturday night where there's squad cars from all over the county bringing their uh, um, people to the, to the jail and they sit in line and it wastes time and it, it takes them off the street for a number of, number of uh, hours. But that's so there's a lot of different issues that we were dealing with. So we began the process back in 2017, really under Sheriff Stewart, uh, where he really wanted to get moving on it. And it took us a few years to have some pretty good information put together. We used, you know, some federal um, help in on jails on what we should be doing. And we got to the point in 2022 where we thought we were moving in the right direction. Um, and then the city of Anoka really kind of stepped up and, and started to have some uh, major concerns. There was a, a communication gap apparently between um, our, our team 
administratively and uh, their team. Okay. Um, not exactly sure how that all happened, but it put us in a spot where we now have to deal with some issues and, uh, and that's what we're doing, dealing with right now. It's going to, the jail itself is probably going to be, you know, starting, starting about the $145 million range uh, to build such a facility. It's probably gone up in the last year, in the last two years, uh, because of inflation and some other things. Um, and in the last year, we did have some good discussions with the city of Anoka on how it would look. Um, but we're still dealing with an issue of in the long term, because the city says, if we take the space that we're going to take, it takes up a whole two other open parking lots. And really, if we built this one the way it is, we would likely not be able to build another one in Anoka sometime 40 years down the line, because there's really no space left in Anoka, in the downtown Anoka In downtown. Area. Okay. Right. Got right. it. So that's why they're saying at the very least, and we're going to begin these conversations very closely with them, is as one of the things that was brought up. Can you have a plan for the future that you would be working towards in the future? Um, and obviously, we'll have different county commissioners and different city council members, but at least to have a plan to say this, the county will look for property um, if we have to stay in Anoka. If there's no changes in the state law, uh, we'll find something in Anoka um, that we can we can maybe build a justice center somewhere down the line. But plan for the 40 years into the future, because the next jail uh, would not fit. Uh, we would not be able to increase the size. Um, we're, we're basically getting cut off by homes that are built around already in, in that place. So there's no really good open space in downtown Anoka to serve um, an expansion down the road. We still got to get all of the uh, the approvals from the from the city on a few things and we'll be talking with some legislators about a couple other ideas but uh that's kind of where we're at and we're going to have those some good meetings with them and hopefully leading to the fact that here's our plan for the future so you don't have to worry about this being um taking up more space in in the downtown um in the future but what are we going to do now? We have to do something now uh, as well. So okay. uh, it still kind of focuses on that area of Anoka right next to the courthouse and right next Got to it. the government center. Okay. Um, you know, what are the other, you, you talk about Anoka downtown, not having any more space. Anoka County's had significant growth. What are the, ch what are the other challenges you see for the County when it comes to whether it's social services, public safety? Um, you know, I mean, there, I feel like Anoka County is one of these places that um, quietly just kind of operates as it is, but, you know, every once in a while there's a flare up, but, you know, you have the national sports center, you have a lot of other uh, activity in the County. Um, what are the next issues that you see, you know, three to five years that the County board has to get ready for now? Well, uh, obviously we've been focusing heavily on the completion of highway 10, um, taking care of the last few uh, signal lights, which will begin pro begin on that in, uh, next summer, uh, that would be in Ramsey's. And then you'd basically have no, no stoplights uh, from, um, you know, University Avenue all the way into Elk River, uh, where yeah. the, and then that would be a nice change of pace for people, make it safer driving. Um, so that's the, the number one thing. We've got the dollars for that. So that's not a project that we have to raise any money for. We just have to finish it off. And then we're moving towards the Highway 65 project, which is yep. another big one because of the, of the safety of that road. So those are the two big uh, transportation issues. Uh, we are always looking at areas where we may need to widen our county roads um, up to four lanes um, just to move traffic with our growth that we have uh, yep. all across the county from Lionel Lakes through 
Blaine into Ramsey and Andover. Uh, so those places are all growing, and we have to make sure the county roads uh, suit the per- suit the need of our uh, of our um, residents. Uh, the social services are always a big. Uh, uh, project for the county. It's it's our big. It's probably our biggest committee, our subcommittees that we have. It's our biggest subcommittee because of everything that's going on. All of the state dollars and some federal dollars flow into us, and then we do the programming and make sure that we keep that programming moving forward and handling what is needed by the uh, by the residents as well. But the growth that's going on is is big, and and um, and it's going to continue to be big. And like I said, areas like Lionel Lakes, you're seeing some growth going on there. You're seeing growth, obviously, in Blaine going north, and Andover and Ramsey both have areas uh, where they're going to grow. So it's a, ma- a matter of being partners with our cities. Yeah. Um, one of the unique things I think in in the last few years is that um, in the elections for county commissioner, we have now I think six out of the seven county commissioners served on city government uh, bodies. Okay. Uh, so we've had that. And, and one of my goals when I, when I ran for this office um, was to continue the work that I was trying to do as a mayor um, a, a, on the county board and listening to our cities as best we can, because we have to have a good relationship. You don't want to always be the big hand of the county just saying, here's what you're going to do. Um, you want to work with them. Got it. Um, my guest is uh, Chairman Mike Gamash. He's the new chair of the Anoka County Board. And we're talking about the issues in Anoka County. You talked about transportation. Um, there's been some tense uh, in issues with North Star and the relationship with the Met Council. Is, is that something that demand just doesn't meet, uh, you know, the, the project? How, how, how do you think the board will move forward on that? Well, we've been taken out of the process, um, thanks to the legislature last year. Uh, they basic they basically are now handling, or they have turned it over to Met Council. They they have all the, month, the dollars that they need. They got the uh, legislation that they've got enough money to run the Met or run North Star. Yep. Uh, which in my mind was a good thing. Uh, okay. We would battle back and forth uh, with the politics of it, and um, it wasn't. And then, of course, you had COVID, and then you're dealing with how that was all going to work out. So okay. the the it was supposed to be a line that brought people to and from work, and not as many people are going downtown every day to work. Yep. So that's that's good. So I'm glad, actually, that the legislature stepped up and did that. I think it could help in getting the line moved all the way out to St. Cloud because of that. Uh, we'll see. I've got uh, county commissioner friends in uh, Sherburn County and Stearns County and all the way up to St. Cloud that have talked about wanting to get the yep. train up to St. Cloud. So I'm hopeful for that now that our part of it is we're out of that part of the loop of having to, to make some of those decisions. So I thank the legislature for that. One of the things that has come up over the last couple of years and, um, you know, uh, county commissioners are nonpartisan, but there seems to be some party, I don't know, divide, debate, mm-hmm. discussion within your party, within the county board. Um, and, and, you know, there's been, accusations against other commissioners is the culture of the county board is the culture of the county um in a healthy place uh we're we're rebuilding uh that relationship um we we needed uh, there were some issues there are some issues so my hope is that uh we can get back to a place where we have taken out any of these politics issues because they're really not there 
90, I would say 98, 99% of the time, we all vote on a 7-0 vote. It's, yeah. it's not, there's no differences. Uh, of course, budgets are always going to be difficult and you may have somebody decide, I'm not going to vote for this. I'm not going to vote for that just because I didn't get uh, the percentage I wanted in the in the increase of the levy or whatever I wanted something here I wanted something there so but that's very very uh, um, odd situation that doesn't happen very often if, uh, in in our role and it's very similar to what you see in most city governments um, because you're dealing with the day to day issues of of getting things done and that's I think the role that's what I want to bring back I want to get to that place where we don't have this I know one of the commissioners was mentioning politics and, and party politics and conservative versus progressive or um, they probably call them liberals. Um, in my mind, you don't deal with those issues very often at all. Um, and uh, we try to stay away from any of those types of things, like not having odd resolutions, like calling ourselves a constitutional county, uh, which was uh, something that was done about four years ago during okay. COVID. And uh, um, Commissioner Meisner and myself voted against it because it made no absolutely no sense. And uh, it was it was very critical of the governor and the work that he was doing at the current at that time during handling COVID. Um, so um, it we've all agreed just after that was passed um, that we would never do those types of things again. We would not go into those political things again. That came from AMC, the Association of Minnesota Counties had put out uh, a resolution to say, hey, this is what counties should be doing. They shouldn't be involved in this type of thing. And I agree 100%. We won't be involved in those types of things. I've never sought, um, in the times I've, re I've run for election, I've never sought a party endorsement. Okay. I will talk to my friends in different political parties if they want to talk with me and we'll, uh, I'll work with them. Uh, but I don't seek their endorsement because that's not a part of what we do. Uh, we're not like uh, Ramsey County and Hennepin County that do have some of that um, party politics, I think, still involved in theirs, and they do seek endorsements. But um, I've never done it, and I never will do it. Um, I'll keep the party politics in St. Paul and down in, in Washington, D.C., and not here in Anoka County. County Chairman Gamash, thanks for joining me on Sunday Take. Thank you so much. Have a good one. When we come back, Sunday Take, on the latest issues and topics, I'm Blois Olson. You're listening to News Talk 830-WCCO. My second guest today on Sunday Take is Steve Grove. He's the publisher and CEO of the Star Tribune. And uh, he's a few months into the job. He's got some big visions with his team and the Star Tribune for 2024 that just came out uh, today. And uh, we just we want to touch base because uh, the Star Tribune is an asset. Wherever you fall politically, the idea that we have a strong newspaper that covers the state uh, is important. And uh, so, Steve, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Blaise, for having me on. Um, so you're a few months into the job. What is it, like six, seven? I think it's like seven or eight, something like that. All right. You know, spring of last year. So you've kind of wrapped your head around it. You've done a bunch of listening sessions. You've talked to, I know, your staff and people internally. You you follow media business pretty closely. What What are the two or three things that readers and observers should look for in 2024 from the Star Tribune? It's going to be an exciting year. And I think anybody who follows media sees that there's challenges out there. Technology is moving fast. So many news organizations are finding ways to contract or refigure themselves. 
We're a bit of a different story here in Minnesota. This is a state that has long prized quality journalism that participates civically and shows up, that subscribes to newspapers and wants to know what's going on, and that has a sense of identity to it. We think that in a time when media is changing really quickly, your state's flagship newspaper should do the same. So we've got big plans for growth. Probably the the top thing I mentioned in our announcement today is just expanding our coverage in Minnesota. We want to cover more of the state. You know, there was a time when the Star Tribune was actually called the Minneapolis Star Tribune, when it was really yep. just focused on the metro. And we think there's more we can say and uncover and share about our state more broadly. I spent time, uh, about a dozen different listening tour stops outside of the metro uh, last summer and fall, and just learned a lot about what people are looking for. Of course, many local newspapers across the state have had economic challenges. We think we can come in and do something a little different and start to connect some dots across the state and help people understand what's happening in Moorhead, in Duluth, in Bemidji, in Mankato, and play a different kind of role there that gives people a greater sense of where Minnesota is and where it's going. Because let's face it, this is a state that is in so many ways in the national spotlight as well. Yeah, I I mean, obviously, I'm a media junkie. I consume a lot of media. We curate and produce media. Um, But, you know, the audience, you talk about Minnesota's unique places but obviously newspapers have struggled subscribers have struggled when i tell people i get three newspapers at my house every day (laughs) in paper form they they look at me sideways and i'm not just talking about younger people i'm talking about people of my generation i don't even get three newspapers a day (laughs) wow well there you go but you know what is what do you think is going to draw either new subscribers or new interest uh, in new audiences, not just from greater Minnesota, but let's, let's face it. My kids are 20 and 18. They grew up in a house that newspapers were here every day, but they still get their news and they get it on their phone. Well, readership is changing rapidly. We know that. And while we'll continue to serve readers in print uh, in the best ways that we can and commit to, producing an excellent print product. We know digital is the future. That's really why the team brought me in to steward this chapter of this amazing institution. So a big part of what we're doing is creating a digital product that's worth subscribing to and differentiating it from, you know, the other subscriptions that you have a, a choice of making, whether it's news or Netflix or what have you, you know, expanding the coverage is one piece, deepening our impact in the state is another. I think also just tonally, we want to really become a useful utility for Minnesota, the kind of thing that you can't quite live as good of a life in the state here if you don't have a subscription to the Star Tribune, because we're helping make your life uh, easier here and helping you understand your state better. And that means focusing on solutions journalism. It means focusing on ways people can make an impact. Yes, we'll cover the, the stories of challenges that are that people face, and we'll do the, the hard-hitting investigative reporting that's a part of our backbone. But you know, people are also tired of bad headlines after uh, several years of challenge in our state and our country. And there's things to be proud of as well. So finding that balance. And then I think also just staying committed to being an objective source of truth. I think this idea that there's no more objective source of truth, the only media is biased media, is just something we seem to have manufactured for ourselves these past few years. There are a common set of facts that can help us make good decisions, regardless of your political background or your voting history. And I think you should expect your statewide newspaper to be able to provide that level of common understanding of what's happening and, and to double down there versus to somehow believe that that possibility has passed us by. You know, you bring that up about objective journalism and, you know, I live it every day. I know you live it every day. You've lived it in a couple different parts of your life. Um, but let me just 
let me ask this, and and I didn't think this was going to be a topic until you brought it up. Talk about that and how and or what you've learned about the newsroom and 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 the journalists. And I know you guys have been hiring, and I know there's a lot of new faces. And I think you know, you know, I, as as people know, and you know, I deal with reporters every day all over mm-hmm. the country, and and there's there's let's just say that the culture has shifted and I don't know that it's good or bad. It's just different. And, and, um, and so how do you ingrain like, no, we have to be more fact-based or you have to leave some of your, you know, personal views or personal angles at home when you're writing in order to build trust. And, and I'll just say it. uh, My thought is that younger journalists have to recognize this sooner as journalism is challenged more than veteran journalists who kind of understand kind of how to thread the needle a little more. Yeah. Well, I think our commitment to being fact-based and objective is unwavering here. And while certainly anybody who reads any news outlet can come away with a perspective on, you know, the political perspective of a reporter or what have you, you know, that is at the core of what we're trying to do as a company. So yes, it's training young journalists. Yes, it's um, having the newsroom get a really clear sense of its North Star. But I have found largely that our reporters are there. It's really more about how to reach audiences in ways that are useful and that match, you know, modern ways of consuming media. We need to be in new mediums in different ways. We need to hire those with skill sets that can reach uh, viewers who don't get three papers a day on their doorstep. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think from an ex- perspective of objective fact-based journalism, it doesn't mean we don't want opinions in our paper. Of course, our commentary section is some of the richest collection of opinions that we have out there. In fact, one of the announcements we're making uh, today is hiring a greater Minnesota columnist, someone who can share opinions from outside of the Metro and give that personality and perspective to our readers. So I think there's room for, for all of it. Um, but I think you have to stay focused, have a clear vision for where you're headed. And I think uniquely at a time when social media has taken such a dive, when Twitter has become really uh, almost impossible to navigate, where finding truth in any of those platforms is really fleeting, doubling down on truth, objective reporting, breaking news that feels uh, trusted and that you can come to as many times a day as you need to, to understand what's happening in your community is a huge gap in our media ecosystem today. And one that we feel like we can fill much better. So this development of a today desk, part of our announcement today as well, yep. is always on breaking news function is a big piece of that too. Really See, kind of an anecdote to social media, if you will. No, I, I think that that's exactly what I envisioned when I saw the, the, that breaking news desk and, um, and we could talk for hours about the decline of Twitter and social media for news, but we won't do that today. But talk about breaking news. Cause I would say that this is part of, you know, the way in which uh, we feel it here as, as we think about an election year and how we're going to stay current with Twitter, not being what it is. And, you know, three newsletters a day, how do we make sure that we have it fresh and as you know, we like to be first just with the nugget, just the fact, like so-and-so is retiring from the legislature. Yeah. You guys can write You guys can write 20 inches on that, but we just want that nugget so somebody feels smarter. What kind of breaking news do you think is the opportunity to put out there more frequently or follow that readers really want to know? Yeah. 
Well, you're a pro at this, and we all read your newsletter for that reason and many more because you're on top of the things that are breaking at any given moment. You're right, even if it's just a nugget. I think, you know, we'll continue to want to win on breaking news, getting information first. That's a technique of journalism that's as old as the craft itself. That's not anything that's really new. But I think it is that perspective of what to think about it, how to understand it, what context to put into it, the reporting that a newsroom that has over 200 journalists can only do um, compared to any other player in the market that probably differentiates us. And I also think breaking news isn't just, you know, who was fired or hired or, you know, um, what disaster might have taken place, but it's also some of the fun stuff. You know, it's, you know, what's popping on social media? What what trends are people talking about? What are the kind of the wallet water cooler trending breaking news pieces that help us understand more about who we live and who we are and where we're going and also just might make us chuckle for Pete's sake. So I think having that sense of a today desk that's always paying attention to that in Minnesota on behalf of Minnesotans can be a huge asset that really only the Star Tribune could do at the scale that we hope to do it at and hopefully just complements the great work that you do, the great work that our friends at NPR or other local news organizations do, because I think there's room for a lot of different approaches here. But it's something where we felt like, gosh, there, there's a space here, especially given how bad social media has gotten, especially given uh, how uh, much people just want to know what's happening in their communities. One of the things that, you know, we can talk about media, we can talk about coverage, we can talk about breaking news, but ultimately the start means a business and revenue matters between advertising and subscribers and digital products. Are there models that other newspapers or outlets have in, looked at for other forms of revenue that you guys are looking at? You know, it's one of those moments where people are trying a lot of different things. And you could argue that the only couple of papers that have done this at a national level and built a model that's kind of sustainable might be the, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. I don't know if anybody at the local level has quite figured out that model. And so really, our vision is to, is to become the leading model for local news in America, the kind of model where other regional or local papers are looking to us and saying, hey, they, they've landed a sustainable model that works. How we get there is, of course, the journey we're on. Part of it is this growth that we talk about in the column today. Part of it is just modernizing ourselves into becoming a modern digital media company versus a traditional newspaper. But part of it is coming up with entirely new ideas and other ways to generate revenue. And one of the announcements we're making today on that front is building out a philanthropic arm. We know Minnesotans are a very giving people. Um, we know that there's more money out there than ever before to fund local news from non uh, customer sources, but from foundations and other grants. So we need to position ourselves to take advantage of that. We're hiring a new development director uh, to that end. And then we're looking at other ways to generate business opportunities. You've got a trusted brand in the state. You've got a, a company that's been around for a long time. How can you leverage that trust to help people do things that aren't just consuming news? Maybe it's consumer reviews. Maybe it's how you engage with leaders. Maybe it's a sense of what your identity is in Minnesota. Maybe it's how we partner with other organizations. We're figuring all that out, but it feels like a time of possibility at the Star Tribune. It feels like a time where people feel like innovation is is within our grasp. And we've got a great local owner and committed board and most of all great readers that are making it possible. As we wrap here, um, if people have either given up on the Star Tribune or they're not a current subscriber, what what do you hope they see in the next year that might turn them back into a subscriber or turn them into a subscriber for the first time? You know, I hope that Minnesotans can look at the Star Tribune and see an institution that helps them connect to their communities better than ever before 
and that is providing something of new and different value than they might have ever expected. You know, I think you're going to see a very different Star Tribune this year. We've started out with a couple of these announcements just to kick the year off, but we're going to continue a drumbeat of new things that we're doing to just make it worth your time and money to, to spend time with us and to spend your money with us. Just having a, a chance to read a couple of local news stories probably isn't enough for someone to say, I'm going to go from being a non-subscriber to a subscriber. But if we can provide ways for you to connect with your community, to connect with your civic leaders, to understand uh, your community in ways that you couldn't before, to understand parts of the state you might not have uh, looked at before, I think we can provide a, a new Star Tribune, you know, founded on the basics of being a great statewide news organization, but looking for new and more modern ways to reach viewers. That's that's the goal. And we'll keep sharing that with people as we go. Um, but we're lucky to be in a state where we've got such uh, committed citizens. And for all the struggles Minnesota has, I think this is a place that has a sense of identity to it. People are proud of being Minnesotans. I mean, I, I grew up here. I left for uh, many years and I was really struck when my wife, Mary, and I moved back here five years ago. Just what a sense of pride there is in this place for who we are, despite you know all of our challenges. And that's something that I think a local news organization can really play into and help help foster and grow. Well, Steve, I know we'll talk down the line, but thanks for joining me on Sunday Take with your 2024 vision. You too. Thanks so much, boys. When we come back, this week's take. Are we losing the quality of candidate locally and nationally? Stay tuned on News Talk 830 WCCO. Welcome back to Sunday Take. This week's take is really about the dichotomy between local politics and national politics and the candidates that are selecting. One of the big factors that I've outlined in my preview of 2024 is candidate quality. And candidate quality in Minnesota is largely determined by candidates who are recruited and then the local party apparatus that lines up behind those candidates at the caucuses for endorsement. And those caucuses kick off in February this year. So we're not that far away. And I've said that control of the Minnesota House will depend on candidate quality. If Republicans want to take it back, they have to put up candidates and have candidates make it through their endorsement process that are ultimately electable by an entire district. We've seen candidate quality suffer. And by quality, I mean, do they fit the district's mainstream voters, not just the party operatives or activists within that district? Do they think bigger than their party or their personal goals? What's their track record? Have they served in other elected roles or are they new when it comes to the legislature? And so as we look at candidate quality at the local level as a big determinant of the dynamics of who's going to control the Minnesota House, As we look at retirements, like I mentioned in the opening segment, like Liz Olson and Mike Nelson, on both sides, it is, in most districts, the most liberal or most conservative person that gets endorsed, which creates a sort of polarization of the legislature before they're ever elected. The other dynamic that I've observed the last few years is that whether or not they are a subject matter expert, whether or not they work in healthcare or business or education, of course they have opinions and they bring those to the legislature, which is their job and their role. But the institutional knowledge that leaves the legislature doesn't 
leave with it a playbook of why Minnesota policy is what it is or how the process to change significant policy should happen before there is knee-jerk and rash decisions. And this all brings us to the issues that are local, but also how they play out nationally. This week, the Minnesota delegation endorsed Donald Trump to be president. Earlier last year, the Democrats, with the exception of Dean Phillips, all endorsed Joe Biden to be president. Well, we've known Angie Craig and Tom Emmer have differences with Biden and Trump, respectively, but they've set them aside. And I thought this week's endorsement of Trump by Minnesota's four congressional delegates shows that candidate quality and electability isn't even still the topic that members of Congress are endorsing on. Instead, they're endorsing on their own loyalty or their own threat. For instance, if a member of Congress didn't endorse Trump or endorsed somebody against Trump, would that warrant a challenge from the Trump wing of the party? It's something that happens in both parties because look at Dean Phillips, who warranted a challenge from within the DFL because he was challenging Biden. In all of these cases, the public, the voters, are the ones who get left out of the equation because we know what the poll numbers are in the presidential race and we understand how one-party rule in the legislature has been frustrating for almost half of Minnesota. And so what I am saying in 2024 is Let's find a way that candidates who inspire have a way to make it through. But in in order for that to happen, you need an informed and engaged citizenry and audience. And so the first take of 2024 is it's time to do away once and for all with the caucus system. It doesn't provide the best candidates. It doesn't provide the best process. It only helps those who are most insider and most extreme in both parties. And so people talk about gerrymandering, but the safe seats get more liberal and the safe seats for Republicans get more conservative. And there just aren't that many middle seats anymore. So if you want the middle to engage, let's go to a June primary and no caucuses. Once and for all, Minnesotans could participate without spending a Tuesday, a Saturday, a Sunday in the caucus process, which in 2024 doesn't fit most families' lives. That's the take this week. I'm your host, Bloy Solson. I'll be with Vanita at 620 all week, Monday through Thursday. Next week, I think we'll have Mary LaHammer on. She has a new documentary about Jesse Ventura coming out. Sign up for the newsletters at fluence-newsletters.com. 
Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.